Here you go. So we're uh, going to talk about, you know, continuous compliance on Amazon is, is really a journey. And it starts with some basics that we have to bring from our time in the data center. So thinking in terms of how do we bring our best practices up and make sure that we're complying at a baseline level. So engineering and compliance is a symbiotic relationship. And a lot of times when you look at cloud today, um, we go up with a very ferocious level of, of excitement, but we forget to bring some of our capabilities and skills along with the journey. So it's very important that we tee that up at first. Bring your, uh, bring your already existing best practices with you. So one of the first things that you'll, you'll encounter... Yeah, sorry, this is not working out as good as I would hope. So in terms of Second Watch's approach, we consult at a very deep level with our customers. And one of the first things that we work on are the basics. And the basics come down to the simple things. First and foremost, making sure you're building a baseline configuration management framework for your company. And that's unique for every company. Then putting in place configuration management for your baseline images and making sure that you maintain the scope of health of those images along the journey. So that means things like baseline image consistency, patch and compliance. That means making sure you're staying up with patch and compliance, revisions and updates, all the basics things that we have to do to keep those infrastructure and workload application images in check. Then we have to do things to try to make our job easier. At Second Watch, we're known for automation and orchestration. So manual tasking is not something you want to do up in the cloud. We want to try to automate and orchestrate these images. We want to try to automate and orchestrate the patching. We want to make sure that that continuous compliance comes in. And the way that we do that is utilizing third-party tools such as Chef, Puppet, Ansible. We go to that level to ensure that everything we do is complying with a structured framework and that we don't derive away from that framework. Now, as we're doing this, we're also analyzing data. So we look deeply at the data at Second Watch and we look at that data and we make decisions and derive paths and directions based on the data that we acquire. A lot of you may or may not flex all of that IT operations data you bring in from your Amazon environment, but that data is very important specifically when it comes to compliance, not just for just traditional security and compliance of my images, but also how are my applications complying. So keep that in mind that patching, configuration management, state configuration, all those things are super critical that you have a process and framework to apply in production. Now, in terms of compliance standards, there's a lot of different verticals out there. So if you work in a different industry. How many of you work in healthcare? So for you, it's HIPAA. Some may be in Department of Defense. Some may work in the financial industries. Different verticals will have different ways we uniquely apply those compliance frameworks. But I always try to tell people it's really PPT. It's people, process, and technology. This is a standard model we've used for decades. So if I have good people and I have great processes, then the technology implementation becomes much more capable of implementing right the first time. 
if I'm missing good people and I don't have the process, I'm more likely to have a bad experience with my journey to deploy. Most importantly, you want to start thinking about cataloging your baseline images. You want to think about maintaining that catalog. That means maintaining the scope of health, making sure your security teams are approving those images, that you're not deriving away from those image scopes when you go into production. These are very basic things you can do, but they're very important to maintain your compliancy. And then, like I said earlier, don't forget what you learned in your virtual days on virtualization, and don't forget what you've been doing for years in terms of configuration management in the data center. All of those skills apply for you now up in the cloud. You don't have to leave them behind. And, and you'd be surprised how that is happening today with the ferocious nature of adoption of cloud capabilities. Customers are simply dropping new machines in, and they're not doing the basic security protection mechanisms up front. They're doing it reactively. So we want to make this a proactive initiative. So in terms of traditional benefits that you can, uh, uh, you can achieve in terms of risk and compliance, traditional compliance approaches such as config management, state management, security and depth, defense and depth modeling, you know, how are my images connected to uh, the internet? Are, are, am I putting enough defense and depth in front of them? It's not just my image state. It's the security that sits in front of my VPC. It's the security that sits in front of my VMs. What am I doing at the edge? What am I doing at the application layer? Do I have enough security intelligence to look at what's going on at the application attack vector? Or am I only seeing IPS and IDS? So you have to start mixing and matching. And one of the beauties of Amazon is we have a rich marketplace to choose from with a diverse set of cost-modeled solutions that work across a broad range of segments. So whether you're a small, medium enterprise or you're a global enterprise, there is a solution that will scale to protect those environments for you and do a very good job. Doesn't matter where you sit in the customer food chain. And so in terms of cloud security, we look at it from a continuous basis. A lot of times, it's going to start out as a manual journey for you. And that's OK. At Second Watch, it did for us as well. We didn't automate off the bat. We had to build a set of manual processes. We call it prescriptive architecture guidance. Simple documentation of how do I do a specific procedure. Once you get those procedures in place, you don't derive away from them. You maintain that, and you use that repeatedly. And that maintains your security posture. So keep that in mind as well, that it doesn't mean automation by default. That's a journey. It took us years to get there um, in terms of automating a lot of our workflows and, and capabilities. Now, benefits of Amazon's environment for us is, number one, the images are always up to date. Number two, the security groups are always to their limited footprint. So we do have some things Amazon provides us in, in terms of protection improvements that come by default when we deploy. But still, if you know about the history of hacking on the cloud, then you know that within usually 30 to 45 seconds of deploying an image in any cloud, someone is already trying to ping that image. So we have to be very quick to secure these environments before they can become compromised. And so keep that in mind that protection is essential. Um, unplanned changes, you're going to encounter those. The way that you handle them is by scanning your environment continuously 
and that use, utilization of manager of managers of tools. You can use just standard scripting. You can use third-party tools. Go out and make sure you're maintaining scope of health of your environment. That requires us to scan. A great product that Amazon's building a lot of capability around, and you should all be looking at it if you're not, is Amazon's system manager product, which has built-in inventory asset, built-in security compliance and governance, built-in patch management, this is not something you have to pay for, but this product has the ability for us to utilize it in production and start to have that continuous analysis. You can set up schedules for scanning your environment. You can set up packages to deploy to correct uh, uh, unsecure environments, unsecure VMs. And so this is something that we're using ourselves and we're growing our capabilities within Second Watch to flex more and more of what Amazon is bringing to market. And as we saw this week, with lots of announcements, there's lots of great stuff coming that will continue to help us secure and continue our security compliance within the Amazon frame. And then, like I said earlier, PAG is important. How many of you have a framework and process for security in place at your corporate level? How many of you have a change configuration management board that, that has to approve changes before they can go into production? So good, good, good amount of you. That's great because those are the things that block and tackle against unappropriate things happening in our backend engineering and development teams that may seed themselves into production. And so keep that in mind that if your company isn't doing that stuff today, if they don't have a process and a framework in place, you should push them to look at corporations like ASACA and, and certifications around information protection and all these things that you should be doing to con continue to secure your environment. So let's talk a little bit about engineering for compliance. It starts with building towards compliance by default. I say security by default means I have to build for security at the inception of the creation of my image. So I need to focus on what I'm building what its role and workload will be, and then I have to build that template to secure it for just that work role. I don't want to open up more ports. I don't need more services on than I need to. So it's pretty simple stuff that we've done for a long time in the data center, a long time in the virtual world. The same thing applies again up in the cloud. But understand it's very unique for every company. So what works for me in one of my customer touch points isn't going to work for you. It's very unique based on verticals as well. So as you get into different verticals, you'll be doing uh, your building and your templating very differently. So also keep in mind, uh, think about that design up front. Don't make security reactive. Compliance templates, uh, Lars does a lot of work in this space and he's going to take you through some incredible depth demos coming up here. But when you think about accelerating deployment, templatization is the way to do that. Once I have a baseline template in place, then I can rapidly provision, deploy, onboard, and get into production my environments. If I need to make changes, I can go back to that template and I can update, revise it, and then push it back into production. All of this needs to go through a process and a framework. So I need to make sure the proper approvals happen, that my security team reviews it for penetration testing, I need to make sure it complies with my different vertical governance and regulatory sides. All of these things are things we have to think of. But once I have that template and I finalized it and locked it down, then I need to maintain that catalog. And I need to make that catalog very restrictive who has access to it in terms of write access. 
So that's also extremely important. Make sure that you're keeping that catalog healthy and, 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 and that means restricting unnecessary people from accessing it. Now, you can also use CloudFormation. You can use Terraforming to help you along this journey. How many of you are doing a lot of CloudFormation and Terraform? Not enough. Wow. Wow. Um, it, I'll ask a question, but I, we don't have the time. But is it too complex? Raise your hand if it's too complex. Okay, is it just not enough time? Okay, that makes sense. So operational tooling. Um, at Second Watch, we live and breathe off of many different tools. So Chef, Puppet, Ansible, SaltStack. Um, we automate at scale. It's a journey to learn these tools, and it takes a lot of time. But in terms of security, once you get yourself up to speed with these technologies, these third-party tools, they can be very beneficial in automating your otherwise manual world. And in terms of security, when you're scanning hundreds, if not thousands, if not tens of thousands of VMs looking for their footprint of scope of health, you're not going to want to do that in a sneaker net approach. So having good automation in place, even for basic things like scan and resolve patching, is going to be mission critical. And how many of you are using more than 1,000 VMs in production? So uh, how many of you are under 1,000 VMs in production? Okay, so. Some are small, some are big, but the model of, uh, is still the same. The more you use these tools to template and automate, the more they're going to provide you a benefit in reducing your time to task. Now, for us at Second Watch, time to task is the difference between profit or loss. So the reason why we highly automate is to lower our time to task to increase our profitability. If you're in the business of consulting, this is also going to be a very big benefit. Now, Amazon Code Deploy helps us deploy at scale in an automated fashion, and Amazon Code Pipeline helps us push those integrations and also maintain the iterations against those uh, technologies in production. Uh, these are tools that you can take advantage of. And then the MSP Accelerator program that Amazon has is also an essential tool that you can put in motion. These are tools that you can purchase into and that'll allow you to flex Second Watch or any other MSP to help you along this journey if you do not have the intellectual capital in-house to do this. And in some cases, that may be the case for your company, that you don't have the human horsepower to get through some of these technical journeys. Well, that's what we exist for and many other uh, partners in the ecosystem. So if you need support, you, you, you can reach out and get it, even if it's just pinging me or pinging Lars, and I would say ping Lars before pinging me, and, and just asking advisory, right? So configuration management really is, is the nuts and bolts, but config state management is really, really where it sticks. So reducing complexity of configuration of all your distributed resources means that we have to figure out what roles and workloads we are using. We have to know the jobs we're doing in our company, and we have to define a workload role for them. Most people just deploy infrastructure. They don't really deploy workloads. If you can get into a role-based deployment, you're already defending against security by default. No different than we did in the data center. Role-based environments are limited for the footprint of their role. So right away, we can use, re, re, in Windows, a good example, the difference between full Windows stack, deployed vanilla, or our Windows Core. Well, what's the difference there? Well, Core is an 80% reduction 
in code footprint, which means about a 62% reduction in patch on Windows by default. So if I know I can meet a core role for Windows and I don't need a GUI, then I should de be deploying uh, Windows Core. If I can use the Nano services of Windows Nano, I should be using that. The closer we get to a services functional model, even though it's not a microservices architecture on a full operating system, the defense and depth comes into play. And at that point, we're really protecting ourselves immensely. So keep that in mind. Make sure you're deploying the right operating system for the right role and that you're reducing the defense and depth of that code base before you even secure the network layer in front of it. So automation and compliance. I'm going to hand it over to Lars now. And if you have any questions, we'll take them towards the end of the session. Thanks, Peter. Can I get the uh, remote? Thanks. Cool. Hey, everybody. How are you doing? <coughs> Um, I want to talk a little bit about some problems we faced specifically at Second Watch and kind of how we went through and solving those. Um, there are certain pieces of infrastructure in our customer accounts that we need to ensure our customers' RTO and RPO goals are met, as well as provide a, you know, a next level customer experience that really shines through. Um, a long time ago, in a city not so far away, <coughs> My team was tasked with ensuring re that resources, when created, were tagged with the appropriate resource tags. A very simple, straightforward task. Doesn't seem very hard, um, but it is a very important one when you think about some of the things that happen with tags, right? So you talk about like cost management and chargebacks, things like that, or even just you know division of environments to understand what environments running on what infrastructure. Um, there's a ton of things that can be based off tags, and they can be used in a million different ways. But particularly, this is kind of our problem. And this is a very specific one to us, right? So we had based workload supportability and service level on a set of tags. So if new infrastructure was created, we needed to know the environment, who created, and did they follow the approved process, right? So Peter was just talking about change management processes. Do you have a procurement process? Go ahead and raise your hand if you do. I'm sure everyone does, right? So <clears throat> when you have that procurement process, it's like who can request resources, who is enabled to actually say, yeah, we can have them or not. Um, it creates you know, a particular, particular problem for us around that. And so the particular reason we cared so much about this was that the, we based workload supportability and service levels on a set of tags, and this creates some other interesting problems like auditing, particularly for these resources. So EC2, RDS, Redshift, does anybody use, does anybody use EC2, right? <laughs> I'm pretty sure everyone does. Uh, RDS, Redshift, cool, awesome. So you're all familiar with this, right? So we had business logic that was based on a mutable asset in an environment that encourages ephemeral architecture and elasticity. What could possibly go wrong, right? It turns out that there's plenty of things that can go wrong. Um, you know, with the amount of churn that goes on in some AWS accounts that we manage, it becomes increasingly harder to validate that resources are supported and maintained, right? And so we had another goal, right? And we had this task that to leverage AWS config service, creating a rule to look for specific tags, uh, alert when those tags were not present, and then go ahead and apply said tags to said resource. Has anybody used AWS config? I cannot speak the praises for AWS config enough. If you've used any other cloud provider, whether it's Google or Microsoft, any other one, they do not have a service that competes with this. There is no feature parity for it, right? And this seems pretty awesome. This seems like a pretty good idea, right? And you can see the architecture in the back. And this is kind of what we came up with. 
right? So this is good for a single account, right? But what if you had to do this across 50 accounts? 100. What if you had to do it across 1,000 AWS accounts? Do you want to go into every single account and then modify config rules to make sure that those tags and all those things are happening to those resources? Or what if it's, maybe it's not tags, maybe it's something like a security group that's created with a slash zero CIDR block, right? So you're now wide open the internet. It's probably not good, right? So we can use CloudFormation to deploy some of these resources. Uh, we can use Lambda, S3 buckets. There's a couple of different ways we can do it, go about doing this. But how do you ensure that it gets deployed everywhere? Everyone talks about a single pane of glass, and you know, quite essentially, this is the exact opposite of that, right? We'd have to go to all of our customers and all of their, their AWS accounts, right? Some of them holding hundreds of AWS accounts, and we'd have to parse it and make sure that this was rolled out to every single one of them. That doesn't seem like a really good practice. So this was a problem, and when we originally approached it, it was flawed and brittle, and we didn't understand the actual scope of it until we started getting a little bit further down the line. So how do we know when config gets turned off? Or what if our credentials get deleted so that we can no longer make any changes in those environments? You know, just how do we know? This Lambda code is a really basic example of the Lambda code from the previous slide. And what we would do is we'd process some messages from SQS uh, coming along, and we'd basically just parse out a couple of key pieces of information, right? And so if the events match something that marked our event in config, then we go through and create some remediations on it. There's a number of reasons why this didn't work, um, but more importantly, what we saw was a greater opportunity and the power of the AWS platform as it comes to compliance. I talked about config not being matched on other providers, and this is really the reason why. We saw something that was really, really important. But I mentioned a greater opportunity, and so I want to kind of take another step in a different direction and kind of talk about how we build systems internally at Second Watch. And so, Building autonomous systems is something that's really near and dear to my heart. I really enjoy doing it. It's like, it's like a never-ending puzzle that you have to solve, right? Um, who, who here has heard that like, automation is going to take your job away? Anybody? I'm sure you have, right? Um, here's the truth of the matter, right? So in autonomous systems, people are actually more important. It's called the paradox of automation. What happens when a system that's completely automated gets a fault? It's gonna continue that fault over and over and over again, millions of times over, right? Has, has anybody ever had a runaway AWS account where it's like you've spun up maybe 100 instances and now your bill's like much higher than you thought it would be? I know I did. I did it the first week I had an AWS account. Sort of like 1,000 instances and I got a huge bill. <laughs> but um, you know, when you get that elasticity, those are some things that you have to think about, right? And so the paradox of automation is that the person actually becomes more important because they have to watch that system and they have to inject themselves when faults happen. So the system we wanted to build was one that would enable other teams at Second Watch to move very quickly and to allow them to leverage the same programmatic access that we were gaining and we needed for our solution. So this could, be, this could allow our engineers to more effectively address issues in production with our customers um, and possibly eliminate the need to manage hundreds if not thousands of sets of credentials, right? We could change the world. That's probably a pretty bold statement. Um, it wasn't really that, that drastic, but um, Maybe not revolutionary in the broad sense of the word, but it could have wide implications. So that brings me here to building autonomous systems. Automa automation is more than just provisioning. It's more than just convergence. It's more than configuring infrastructure for applications to run. It's also more than just tying systems together. So a lot of times people talk about automation, and it's really tying one system to another and just expecting inputs and outputs, right? 
automated systems need love too, right? So when designing automated systems, you really need to think about things in a different way. For one, oftentimes there's no UI. You have no input into that system. You don't even know how to visualize it, right? And so how do you visualize feedback or errors in a system that has no user interface? You need something like centralized logging or you know, distributed tracing. Um, you, know, you need to log and alert on errors and create feedback loops. How do you deploy your solution? What's the, what's the ingress into that system, right? And so technology moves faster than ever. We talked about you know, change management boards and you know, config management and changes and all that stuff. And you know, I live in a different world. I grew up in a world that was 100% agile. I've never walked, worked in a waterfall shop ever. Um, some of you that are like cursing right now that do work in waterfall shops, yeah, it's all good. Anyway, um, so with that in mind, you know, continuous integration and continuous delivery is not new now. You know, 10 deploys a day, John Oswald, uh talking about Flickr, that happened in 2009. Right? So we're coming up on a decade since continuous integration and continuous delivery has been commonplace in, tech, in the tech world, right? But it's not just for technology companies anymore. It's for everyone. And it's, you know, everyone's starting to do it. Everyone wants to do it. Everyone wants to move faster. So with that in mind, when you talk about, you know, continuous delivery, continuous integration, that's why automation becomes so important, especially when it comes to talking about things like compliance, right? So this is actually what ended up happening. I'm not gonna go into all of the stuff that's on this slide, if you have any questions about any of the other architecture, but we're gonna focus on some key pieces of it. And so, we still have some stuff that launches in our customer accounts, right? There's AWS Config, AWS CloudTrail, logs to an S3 bucket, and it also logs to an SNS topic, right? And we subscribe to that. And then we have a cross-account trust role that allows us to jump into that account from a federated access point. Those are the things we really needed. So when Config fires off an event, it hits the SQS queue, and then we process that in Lambda. We do some ETL parsing on it, and then we pull out some key things like the account ID, date timestamp, the raw event as it happened, and then there's a couple other key pieces that we're looking at. But that's really what we're looking for. And the part that I really want to focus on this is after that first Lambda, if you can see, oh, I know there's a pointer right here. So, oh, there we go. Right here, right between the Lambda and the S3 bucket, right there, that drop. And so the reason why that's so important is because now when that event data comes across, any of our teams can actually fire off additional Lambda events from that event, right? So when we started talking about our solution, this is actually an event-driven system that tracks changes to infrastructure in our customer accounts and then alerts downstream teams that either rely or are responsible for various set infrastructure, right? So this is a more complete picture of the solution that we created. Um, we have some other stuff that's down here, but really, like I said, we just want to focus on that. And so if we look at exactly what that does, I'm gonna try and do this one-handed and see how this works. No, I'm good. Cool, all right. So when we look at what actually is coming across, So if you've ever seen what happens with, uh, with config, this is actually what's firing off, right? And so this is an example of a config event in JSON form. So you can see a couple of key things about here, right? So you can see that this is for an IAM user called Lars underscore S3 underscore only. 
I think it's pretty self-explanatory what the role's meant to do, right? I'm supposed to have S3 access and that's it. But now if we look at this config event, there's something else that happened. I can see that I was attached to the group administrators. So what happens when there's a computer that has an IAM role that can only access S3 and then it becomes elevated and now has administrative access to all of your Amazon account? A lot of stuff could happen, right? It's, not, it's, it's definitely not good. Pro someone's probably having problems. So when we look at this, we start thinking about how can we parse this and how can we drive systems off of this? And so what happens is, is we get this next event that fires off and is after it's parsed. And so we talked about where it drops into that S3 bucket. This is what it looks like down at the bottom. Oh, here, let's make that a little bit easier to read. I say easy to read like JSON's really easy to read. But anyway, um, yeah, right? And so that's what the actual config event looks like when it's sent over across SNS. And so we have to parse all that stuff out and then we create some key pieces of information that we want. So you can see region, compliance, uh, DTS is for date timestamp, and then we see AID, which is the account ID and where that notification's fired off. And then we also store the raw event and it drops into S3. And so the cool part about this is, is that now this data and now everything that's jumping in from all of our customer accounts becomes a data leak to understand how people are interacting with their infrastructure. Right? We talked about that live uh, or that event processing center and what we're doing with it. And so let's look at another AWS service that we're leveraging. Oops. Athena, has anybody used Athena yet? Cool. So I'm gonna run this query, it's probably gonna take forever. But as we're doing this, basically what's happening is we're building a large solution that's based off of this, and it doesn't have to be real-time for the analytics that we're providing, or, but like the real-time stuff happens when we want to respond to an event. So let's see if we can get... It's still running. Uh-oh. Demo gods, please don't fail me. Uh-oh. All right, we'll try it one more time and see what happens. It's not looking good. Anyway, the point is, is that if you can access this, and it might be that my credentials may have timed out, give me one second. Yeah, I think it's timing out. Let's do this. All right, so looking back at this infrastructure and looking at the architecture, right? So we have all those events that are going to S3 and we can do other things off of them. For instance, like if we wanted to have some type of real-time notification that something was changing in a customer account, we could fire something off like this. And so I'm gonna use a test, uh, a test event for this, but let's say, let's run that. Okay. Oh, we got a notification Slack. Okay. So right now you can see exactly what's happening inside that account and the event that actually caused that notification, right? So in that account ID, an IM user was actioned on at this date with the action of update for uh, a particular resource ID. This corresponds with CloudTrail, then you can look it up and then you can actually trace that. Now the rest of our stack that we were showing actually does this, but the idea is that anyone can do this. 
the platform that Amazon gives you and that you're able to do is you can drive all of this stuff off of config and events that are happening in real time in your account and then parse it back and provide action on it. So maybe there's another thing, like maybe something happens with that IM user, right? Create a rule to parse events in IM. Oops. There we go. So that same event that you just saw that fired off previously, I used that as a test event, but this is actually what's happening in our system. So we see alert, user Lars S3 only, an account, whatever, has been given administrator access. Previously, it only had the S3 read-only access. So as these things are happening, we can start seeing this in real time, and then we can start doing additional events on it too. So maybe um, you wanna see things like a heat map. Where, is the, where are all the changes happening in my infrastructure? You can build it off a system like this. Or maybe you want to do something like, uh, I don't know, tag compliance. Maybe you want to update all of the instances that are being launched with a particular set of tags based on the account and the user who's launching it. Oops. So when we talk about doing some of those things, you know, I think the idea is, is that, you know, continuously people have always thought that you have to build versus buy, and you have to buy a solution to gain some of the advantages that you're looking for. I don't think that's necessarily true. I think that sometimes it's very true, right? There's a couple of really awesome partners out there in ISVs that do a really great job in continuous compliance, and I'm sure you've seen a lot of them on the demo floor and the expo floor. But I think sometimes you don't necessarily know if you need to buy or build until you've actually built something, right? And I think that that Exercise in building is really, really important to understand where your capabilities lie and what you're actually looking for because some solutions might get you 80% there. They might get you 100% of the way, but you don't actually know that until you really see what your business use case is. And so for us, when we looked at it and what we were doing, it became really clear that we had to build a solution that was independent for our needs, and that's how we handled it. Peter, you want to come back up? So that was a great demo, Lars, and, and, and I think in closing, <clears throat> we want to make sure that you're thinking in terms of security as a 360 vision. And so thinking about wrapping around security in everything you do, whether it's the way you code, whether it's the way you build your baseline images, whether it's the way that you design your configuration management environment, whether it's the way you deploy your VPCs, you have to bring security into your life now. It's very important. It's the wild, wild west in the cloud and we have to make security first and foremost. Another thing is thinking in terms of awareness. Um, that awareness is not for us as IT people, as DevOps people, or even DevSecOps or traditional IT infrastructure engineers. It's business group level insight. You have to shift away from traditional security to a risk-based security model. And what does that mean? It means working with my business groups to determine their unique needs versus working at a corporate level where all I do is defend one way. Each group is going to be a different animal, 
and I need to have a risk-based approach and a policy-based approach to work security best of breed for each of those scenarios. The way I handle human resources systems is going to be very different than the way I handle revenue generational vehicles, such as core banking, if you're a banking vertical. So I need to meet, meet the unique standards and the frameworks for each of those workloads. And so I mentioned uh, continuous integration and continuous deployment a little earlier um, and why it's so important. And this is actually a quote um, that I hold really near and dear to my heart. This was, uh, this happened actually a couple years ago, but basically uh, this was from uh, a researcher at Gartner. Um, digital business is essentially software, which means that organizations that expect to thrive in a digital environment must have an improved competency in software delivery. This isn't just for unicorns and, and tech giants, it's for everyone, right? Because how are you differentiating yourself in the market? How are you creating new verticals and how are you, out how are you reaching out to your customers and how do you quantify that? How do you gain metrics and input from it, right? It's, it's through our systems and through our digital interfaces that we create those types of interactions. So with that, we wanted to make sure we had a lot of time for Q&A. So the bulk of this session being deep means we want to make sure that we're helping you along your journey. So at this point, we're going to open it up for question and answers. If you want to meet with me and Lars, uh, you can check us out at the Second Watch booth within the Expo. But at this point, we're going to open up to question and answers. Please come to the mic. And as a closing note, please make sure you're filling out your surveys and make sure that you're, uh, you're uh, taking the time to critique uh, the session today and help us improve. So thank you very much, and we're going to open up to Q&A. Could you come to the mic real quick? Thank you. So um, I have a general question on how your overall system handle patch management from a host level. Do you guys handle it from an SMS, uh, SMM? Uh, SSM side, or you guys use your own? Yeah, it's a great question. So historically, our platform has been based on an operational platform solution from a third-party provider. So we, like you, have been using manager of managers tools, which have specific agent topologies that we deploy to our machine instances. We're now developing ourselves along the journey of flexing the CSP's capabilities. Uh, i.e. Amazon System Manager. So we're in that journey of shifting away from third-party tool use to uh, patch managing through System Manager itself. And our cloud management portal is taking that journey towards uh, utilizing System Manager not only for that function, but many other portions of the System Manager platform for other functions as well. It's a great question. And we believe the SSM agent is awesome, by the way. So we've seen a lot of great work with it. If you haven't seen it or touched System Manager, you really should take the time to see what Amazon's built there. Hey, I just uh, you, you mentioned uh, AWS Config and how uh, great that was. What, what value do you get out of that in in the, what, what does that add to your process here? Yeah, so the way all those actual events are generated to see what's coming through and what's being actioned on is all generated through config, right? So anytime there's a change or an update to a, a subnet or a change to a route table, NACL, any of those things, all fire off our config events. And that's the, the part of the, the solution that we were able to basically gather from all of those AWS accounts to put into a single pane of glass. And, but you had CloudTrail in there as well. CloudTrail's in there for audit and traceability. So 
basically when you get a config digest, it gives you a, a reference point, a reference ID that you can also look up inside CloudTrail. So if you wanted to find more information about the particular event that happened, that's basically where your audit starts. Okay. Cool. Thank you. If you if you want to see, I can I can actually show you later, a little bit later. You know. I think there's probably parts of it that I could probably open source after this. Uh, if you want to get with me afterwards, I can talk to you a little bit more about it. Hi. This one is more um, regulatory than technical. So um, my company is trying to build a, trying to build a cloud, believe it or not, a cloud-based medical device, which means we don't just have to be HIPAA compliant. We have to be FDA approved, mm -hmm. which generally means if you make any change to the system, you need to run it through the FDA board. That's Is right. there any way to do that? Uh, to automate that process, no. No, not currently. Uh, and I've dealt with that in a prior company before I came to work for Second Watch. Right mm. now in the medical field, when you're dealing with going through FDA certification, it's a very, it's, it's a long process, as you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've worked with a lot of different medical companies like Novartis and GSK, SmithKline Beecham, Abbott Labs. Um, it's still very manual there. There, there will come a time where that may become an automated capability, but it would require the government agency to open up doorways for companies to be able to submit those types of things uh, for auto approval or auto update from an iteration perspective. So and I think, I'm, go ahead. So what I'm hearing is that if, if it's FDA approved, it's inherently insecure because it's static. No, not not necessarily. I mean, we I think we could spend some more time on this out uh, after the session. But there's a there's there's ways that you can get around that. Um, I think I think you, uh, you you have to. Uh, ha may I ask uh, who 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 are we talking about? Are you a pharmaceutical or are you a, a hospital or uh, medical device medical company. device manufacturer? Uh, more uh, research company, Decker Research and Development. U.S. based. Yep. So not global. Correct. Yeah, let's follow up. I can definitely give you some good advisory after the session. Okay, It's a great you. question. Also, uh, one second. So from a technical standpoint, there are probably some things you can do. Uh, so um, breaking off parts of your system uh, into like things that are not business critical or not uh, don't contain business logic, right? So if it was pieces of like how it's deployed or where it's deployed to and things like that, changing the way that that works and is separated like and basically decoupled from the business logic of your application or, or your device could potentially be a way to go about making changes faster without FDA approval for certain parts of your system. So I think it, it's a matter of system architecture and looking overall at how everything, how the, what changes you're actually making. Because if you can make a business case to say, like, this doesn't impact the business criticality or the business logic of my application, you should be able to make those changes faster. And I've worked with some companies that do, do, do that also. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Hello. Um, I was wondering if you guys have any initiatives to cope with GDPR, or is that kind of out of scope, you guys? So, um, for those that don't know, I mean, GDPR is a new, you know, foundational um, procedure and policy and framework, if not a compliance and regulatory vehicle that's coming out of the Euros. And so we're working on initiatives right now for a lot of companies, uh, including us. It is a very high learning curve to getting up to snuff with everything that comes along with GDPR. And so um, we are starting with our risk compliance teams. So we have a dedicated risk compliance officer. Uh, we're working with our audit teams within our big six firms that work with us. Um, for Second Watch, because we are US-based and we haven't gone global, 
it's a future issue for us, but for a lot of companies that are global, those policy and regulatory changes that come along are gonna be net new procedures and frameworks that we're gonna need to apply. Um, the way that I've uh, ramped myself up, and I'm a security expert by trade, I went and I took the ISACA GDPR certification course in Washington, D.C. at the latest CTX 2017 event. I don't know how many of you are, work in ISACA or have ISACA certifications for information security and things of that nature, but... Yeah, uh, did you go to the one in Washington? Yeah, so at Washington, D.C., it was brought up deeply. Um, I definitely will follow up with you. Um, ISOC is going to, you know, definitely uh, deal with it at a very deep level within, if you're in an information security management position within your organization, whether it be risk compliance or IT uh, uh, information management, uh, these, uh, these uh, organizations like ISACA help us prepare to be experts in those fields. So just like I go and get my MCSE in a Microsoft certification or my Amazon certification, ISACA is the equivalent certification for those that manage information. Yeah, I-S-A-C-A, ISACA. Um, I'm certified in all disciplines. I'd uh, be happy to follow up with you. Um, I'm part of the Washington State chapter, uh, the, uh, the Seattle chapter, but it's a great organization for those that's job is managing information security, the, specifically the information behind the company, right? So IP, data protection, P2 information, control vectors, all that stuff. Um, a great organization to be a part of, and their training courses certify you in the field. Um, and GDPR is a, was a big topic at CTX 2017. It, it's a big topic for everybody right now. Great question. Any other questions? Awesome. I want to thank everybody for coming out. And uh, if you have any other questions, you can see me and Peter over at the Second Watch booth on the expo floor. Or if you just see us walking around, feel free to come up. Thank you so much. Cool. For